Hi, uh, you're tuned into the 11th edition of the Free City Radio podcast. Um, today on the show, I'm going to be uh, looking at some voices who are advocating for migrant justice. Um, we're going to begin the program with audio from the annual Status for All demonstration that took place in Montreal um, on July 4th. Uh, this is a protest that was um, drawing attention to different migrant justice struggles, um, both here in the city, but also all over. Um, it was a demonstration to call for the immediate granting of status to all non-status people. Um, one highlight was, of course, the um, basically the the idea that all are essential and we can't have a society where anybody's left behind. Um, there's a legal apartheid that exists in terms of citizenship rights. And um, if we look, you know, at a lot of different sectors of labor, uh, a lot of non-status people are exploited. Um, I addressed in the last podcast the issue of uh, warehouse workers for Dollarama, for example, um, who are working in very crowded conditions um, around the city, uh, doing essential uh, labor distribution work, but do not have access to the same rights. Um, corporations like Dollarama are exploiting this. Um, generally speaking, the demand for status for all is to call for status across the board uh, for all non-status people. Um, this is a demand that has been pushed by community groups and activists for many years. And uh, the protest this year in 2020 has a particular resonance um, because the ways that the pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis, has uh, illustrated the profound injustice, for example, of uh, detention centers, uh, immigration jails uh, here in Montreal, uh, just off of the island, of course. There's the Laval uh, Immigration Jail. It's in French, it's called the Centre de Prévention de Immigration, uh, the Centre of Prevention of Immigration. Um, this is where families and um, and uh, refugee asylum seekers are often locked up uh, at times for very long periods. Um, this is a prison for people uh, who have um, taken their uh, internationally recognized right to migrate. These are rights recognized by international conventions. Um, the liberal government of Justin Trudeau likes to talk about recognizing the rights of refugees and international law. But in reality, what we see is uh, the blatant disregard for those rights. Um, often these realities are hidden from the mainstream media. Um, but uh, protests like the one that took place, uh, the Status for All a demonstration, I think, really tried to illustrate um, in a real way um, on the streets um, with uh, people affected by these issues um, how um, these realities persist um, despite the rhetoric of a liberal government. Um, so I got the chance to participate in the demonstration yesterday and I recorded voices of participants. I wanted to just hear what different people um, felt about being there, why they had participated, why it was important. So here are some voices from the streets. Uh, so we're at the protest for Solidarity Cross Borders uh, here at um, Barry Metro, uh, Emily Gamla. Could you introduce yourself and uh, say why you're participating today? 
Okay, my name is Mary Ellen Davis, Marie Ellen Davis, and um, I'm here uh, to carry a banner. It was written uh, Black Lives Matter. It could have been uh, written uh, other messages. Un statut pour tous et toutes. Tout le monde est essentiel. No one is illegal. Uh, that's why I'm here. And uh, why was it important to a lot of these? A lot of people are posting these types of messages on social media these days, which is great to see. But today, people came physically to protest. Why? Why? Why was it important for you to also be here and be present in the streets? Well, I think it makes it more visual, uh, of course. But um, I feel like seeing people. <laughs> We're all in confinement, so uh, when there's a demonstration against. Uh, pretty well any form of injustice I try to make it there uh, a few days ago it was um, uh, in defense of uh, Palestine and a few weeks ago it was um, about Black Lives Matter uh, defund the police uh, so we should be uh, many people in the streets uh, expressing our discontent and our dreams of justice so there's a big distance between the government of Justin Trudeau's rhetoric around human rights and the reality in terms of refugee policy. As a final comment, could you just uh, mention like any thoughts you have about that? Well, uh, you know, the governments are where they're at. Uh, social movement is somewhere else and uh, closer to, uh, to truth and justice. And uh, any form of government uh, kind of even with good, best intentions, uh, becomes uh, uh, corrupt, um, lazy, caving into interests, private interests, um, uh, racist interests. So. so you feel that's happening with the Liberals? Yeah, I mean, uh, it could be worse. Uh, the Quebec government isn't no way better. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, no, they're, they're just not responding to the... Uh, the, the calls uh, of people that are desperate for justice. Thank you, Mary. All right, please introduce yourself and say um, uh, your name and why you're participating. Okay, I'm Ekens Azubika is my name and the founder of Ekens Foundation International, uh, organization that helps uh, refugees and asylum seekers, um, various, not only in Canada, but globally. So I want to partic I participate today on the issue of the hypocrites of the politicians, political elites yeah. that does not remember the less privileged or refugees. But during the election, they try to play Mr. Mr. Good. To You're talking about Justin Trudeau. I'm talking about the politicians. In no, general. no politician is exceptional. Yeah. As long as I consign. During election, they always play Mr. Right, you know, uh -huh. and uh, to find a way to get a vote of the uh, mostly immigrants. Now, the another problem is there are so many cases that is within the United Nations Human Rights Committee, and Trudeau, through his Minister of Justice, is not doing enough to follow up yeah. because the Minister of Justice is writing against the Human Rights Committee in Geneva, asking. To lift an order, you know, yeah. on a case they know that Canada that the tarnish Canada image. Yeah. See so, what, for example, there is one Ghanaian asylum seeker who Canada was trying to deport, but then the United Nations intervened against the deportation. So yeah, like you're saying, Canada is appealing. Yeah, like, like what I, happened I, to yeah, me? Yeah. The order came. The Canada Border Service yeah. Agency hide the the order and removed me overnight. 
and claim that they, yeah, they yeah. did not receive the order. Even wow. up to now, they pretend that they never... So I am a victim. I, I am have a first-hand information. Maintenant, dans cette manifestation pour les statuts pour tous et toutes, oui. vous êtes ici oui. et aussi active avec les comités guinéens pour les statuts. Oui. C'est possible pour parler pourquoi vous êtes participé, pourquoi cette manif c'est important? Oh, oui, euh, cette manif c'est important pour tout le monde, surtout les gens qui viennent ici travailler, euh, demander de l'asile. Euh, nous voyons que le gouvernement essaye euh, de donner une partie euh, le statut et ignorer la majorité, la plus grande partie. Donc c'est pour ça que nous sommes là pour soutenir euh, cette campagne, pour demander euh, le statut pour tout le monde. Et une de les communautés maintenant qui demandait les statuts, c'est les communautés guinéennes. Oui. Euh, c'est possible pour parler un peu sur cette lutte spécifiquement? Oh, oui. Euh, la, la communauté guinéenne euh, a commencé cette lutte à part, de, en 2016. Donc, euh, comme tenu les réalités au pays, l'impunité qu'il y a, euh, l'insécurité, on tue les gens comme ça sans rien à cause de leur opinion politique ou leur orientation sexuelle ou leur orientation religieuse. Donc, pour ça, nous sommes là pour demander euh, le statut. Malgré ça, le gouvernement canadien, il ne veut pas entendre, il ne croit pas aux demandes des, des Guinéens. Malgré la situation euh, qu'il prévoit en Guinée, euh, c'est pour ça que nous sommes là, nous luttons pour demander un statut pour euh, tout le monde et être juste dans, leur, euh, dans le traitement des dossiers des différents cas des Guinéens. Ok. Et le gouvernement de Justin Trudeau parlait beaucoup sur les droits humains, parlait beaucoup sur les droits des réfugiés. Vous êtes parlé d'une autre réalité. Oui. C'est possible pour parler de les distances entre le discours de Justin Trudeau et la réalité? Oui, oui, oui. Il y a une grande, il y a une grande euh, différence entre ce que M. Trudeau parle aux médias et ce que la réalité des, des, des personnes concernées, en fait. Oui. Donc, il y a des personnes ici, pendant des années, ils travaillent contre lui. Jusqu'à présent, il, on ne voit seulement que la parole, on ne voit pas l'acte. Nous, nous demandons au gouvernement Trudeau de passer l'acte à la parole. Donc, ce n'est pas juste de parler devant les médias, mais de mettre accompagné ça par des actes, de régulariser tout le monde. C'est à leur pouvoir s'il est capable de le faire. Donc, ils peuvent régulariser tout le monde. C'est ce que nous demandons. Et pour ça, nous sommes là aujourd'hui, en tant que communauté guinéenne, en tant que aussi euh, membre de cette communauté qui demande la, la régularisation à tous les gens qui sont sans papier et des travailleurs ici. Merci beaucoup. Merci à vous. Je suis à Barry UCAM Metro et je voulais demander aux participants pourquoi ils sont ici aujourd'hui et pourquoi c'était important. Pouvez-vous vous présenter et pourquoi c'était important pour vous d'être ici aujourd'hui Oui, je suis Samir. Je suis partie de l'Aquarium pour la Social Justice Collective. So we are organizing, have been organizing for a few months now, a campaign um, called RAMQ pour tout le monde, so RAMQ pour TLM. The idea basically being healthcare for all. Um, and so we're obviously here in solidarity with Solidarity Cross Borders and the National Day of Action that's been called today, calling for status for all. Because at the end of the day, um, the reality is that the best way for people to have healthcare um, is for them to have status. Uh, that, would, that would solve a lot of things. Uh, in the meanwhile, while we're fighting to that, uh, the idea is basically for everyone who's living in the province to be able to access dignified uh, healthcare. Um, and I think we're trying also to bring in a perspective that in the current context, healthcare is not dignified, even for those who actually are able to access it.
Um, and certainly we've seen the pandemic has just exposed all the more clearly the uh, essentially the apartheid healthcare system that actually exists here. Um, not only for folks who are non-status, but for folks who are living on the streets, folks who use drugs, indigenous peoples. Um, there's significant, significant groups and whole entire populations, in fact, that are impacted by um, the fact that they are not able to access healthcare on the one hand, and on the other is that we're living in a society, in a system that basically produces illness um, just because of how people are forced to live. So it's all those factors basically that we as a collective are, are here today, um, marching in, in solidarity with the demands for regularization for all. Well, it's so crazy to hear over the last few months the ways that some public officials almost seem to recognize that during the pandemic, if anybody's sick, there's a danger. So um, it seems like the contradictions of a society, as you mentioned, like where there's this apartheid dynamic of who has a right to be healthy and who has not, or no access to infrastructure and institutions to um, support their health. Um, so, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about that contradiction of, like, the fact that, oh, during the pandemic, you know, they, they, there was some recognition of the dangers homeless people face, for example, or even prisoners, although the actions taken weren't, weren't the actions needed. There was some discussion of this. Right. I, mean, I think there are plenty of people who are basically said, you know, that it's, this is not a question even of, uh, of kind of the pandemic exposing like you know little things here and there like little breaks in the system the whole system is broken right and, and i think and it's always has been i feel like you know movements around regularization for all movements against police brutality fighting against racism have been here for a long time essentially saying the exact same thing we're saying now um but now that the pandemic has happened i think there's a recognition um, that everything we've been demanding and that people have been fighting for all these years is actually true, right? Like, there's a, there's a bit more of a recognition on that. And so the contradictions that you're referring to are just becoming much more blatant um, and, and, and obvious. And so, I mean, I think it's... it's, it's I wouldn't say it's hilarious because it's, it's obviously, you know, had uh, such major impacts on people's lives. But the fact that I do find an element of it pretty fitting that the fact that, you know, Premier Legault would talk about the Ange Gardien um, for, at the beginning of the pandemic and then realize that the Ange Gardien he's talking about are basically the folks who are working the worst jobs in healthcare and on the front lines in all other aspects, whether it's, you know, working at grocery stores, cleaning floors at hospitals, everything like this. And so I think it kind of came back and bit him in the ass, basically, because then he realized that these people are actually the folks who are who were speaking earlier today. They're the you know racialized folks, folks with precarious status, women, folks coming from neighborhoods that are historically been made impoverished, uh, like Montreal Nord or the East End, etc. And so, and so now the government, in terms of the contradictions that they have to face, are now faced with their own contradictions, saying these people like helped us, and now. Now we realize that they're the ones we've been screwing over for all these years. So it's, I mean, it's a huge contradiction, but I mean, that's what happens in capitalism. Right? At some point, these contradictions have to come up to, to light 
um, for for people to realize it. I guess the question is going to be is what what everyone, what society here does about it. Um, and today people are protesting. Yeah, and this is obviously inspiring, as are the Black Lives Move, you know, Black Lives Matter movement protests that have been happening. All these things, I'm not actually sure a few years ago would have had the same ampleur, the same like um, uh, impact as they seem to, to, to have now. So it's a horrible situation we're living in, in many respects. But it's also kind of hopeful in a way because there is all this mobilization that's happening now that I feel many of us haven't seen in years. So I am at Barry Ucam and there's uh, people gathered. It's at the end of the protest. Um, can you introduce yourself and say why you participated today? Sure. My name is Mars. I uh, have lived in Montreal for the past seven years. And I... All I want to say is that status for all, no borders, no prisons, no police, indigenous sovereignty now. I don't, you know, we don't know how we'll get there yet. And that is the, the, the beauty of, of the process of decolonization and demilitarization and stepping away from a capitalist mode of living. I, and I... I think, you know, I I don't know what what that looks like and I don't think it's it's true to say that I'm ready for it because I have I've been born and you know and have have been inculcated into a into you know, capitalist modernity and so it's not it's not actually honest of me to say, you know, I'm ready for for what's next, but I want it and I want to imagine it and I I want to, to be able to imagine a better and more just world. And uh, being here and being amongst other people and, and like feeling collectively genuinely makes me imagine more. It, I think it broadens like the, the just the, the borders or just tries, starts to chip away at the borders that, that uh, hamper our imagination. So I thank you, Stefan, for asking me to say a word. So I did, I did, I did want to ask you, um, because people are saying status for all. So some people are saying that a lot online today, but people came together in a protest downtown to call for status for all. Yeah. Why, why was it important for you to physically be here to say status for all? I think coming together uh, humanizes and also like renders, you know, uh, whatever, uh, you know, a, a cause or a struggle very real and embodied and you will meet people who have uh, very different experiences from you who will share that with you it's I think it's very important to, to hear also to, to see the work that people put into to organizing and to gathering people especially at times when gathering is very difficult and unsafe and also just to see the care that that what underlines this is and what what undergirds this at least you know this demonstration but really all the demonstrations that I've gone to is care and learning how to care and so you know everybody comes with masks with water with sustenance with food and you the that relation the the relationality of I hate to sorry not to use you know uh, whatever cumbersome words, but that that 
the the dialogue you're not going to get that online yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I'm not somebody who necessarily finds uh, a lot of like like sort of like on I think I think the digital realm is a really important one for a lot of different people because it, it, it does make certain conversations more accessible if you literally can't be in the same physical space uh, I think it's an important way of sharing information uh, I personally find that it's also a terrifying uh, you know, void of um, data mining and uh, uh, you know, like tech tech imperialism. So, like, not my thing. So, so that's why I like to, to come together on the streets. Uh, on the streets, I think there's just you just don't know. It's spontaneity. It's it's you don't know what might take place. You don't know who you meet. I was very lucky to meet somebody at this demo, and we started talking, and now you know and. Whatever. Now I know this new, you know, and like now I, ha- yeah, different na- yeah, different perspectives and just and and sort of like more relationships and and uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, I I think it's oh somebody's. <laughs> I don't think you can. I if you if you don't know who is genuinely implicate involved and applique and like. Uh, in in the organizing happening around you in your city in your neighborhood, then I don't think you can necessarily. I, I wouldn't. I personally don't feel like I can fully participate because also the the way that I learn is by is by. I learn best when I am hearing directly from somebody something, and uh, that's why I come here to to right hear on, people right speak, to, to have conversations. Cool. cool. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stefan. Thank right you for on. the care you put into these. That was a series of voices of people who have um, participated in the 2020 Status for All March that was organized through Solidarity Across Borders here in Montreal. Um, That march was really trying to draw attention to um, the issue of um, the fight for regularization for the rights of non-status people uh, to have access to status. Um, and to have access to the same legal rights as people with status. Um, I think a lot of people don't really conceptualize, at least if we look at the mainstream media's portrayal of the Canadian approach to refugee rights. Uh, A lot of uh, journalists and media coverage does not really recognize the fact that, you know, Canada has a system of detention and deportation and a delineation of rights in terms of non-status people. I mean, there's tens of thousands, um, there's no accurate statistic, but there are so many thousands of people in every major city uh, doing the jobs that a lot of people don't wanna do. Um, You know, we've talked here on the Free City Radio podcast about the uh, campaign happening right now, uh, led by warehouse workers uh, who are working um, for the Dollarama Uh, store chain and um, often these conditions especially during the pandemic have been very dangerous Uh, you're in a huge warehouse with many workers Uh, the ventilation isn't good people are close together Um, and a lot of non-status people are doing these jobs Um, so um, I'd really encourage people to keep looking at these issues Um, it was good to be part of the protest and to hear different people as to why Um, they were joining and why it was important. Uh, Solidarity Cross Borders is online at solidarityacrossborders.org. 
and um, thanks so much for for um, being with us on the podcast today. Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. So I wanted to go to this piece of music now. Um, I love this track. It's by O.K. Tiramis and Johnny Diani. Um, it's from the album Witch Doctor's Son. This track is called Orient Trip.
that was Orient Trip from the album Witch Doctor's Son by uh, duo OK Termez and Johnny Diani. Uh, Termez is a musician uh, from the Balkans, from Turkey, and Johnny Diani is a um, bass player, musician from South Africa. Love that track. I heard it recently on uh, Free Kick Radio on CKUT, so I wanted to play it here. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, the next segment on the podcast is an interview that I did with an investigative journalist named Isabel McDonald. Um, Isabel collaborates with a lot of different media organizations and uh, recently worked um, on a very important uh, piece for The Intercept um, out of the United States. Um, I felt this piece was important because it uh, addresses um, the persisting issue of deportations. Um, so the article is a collaboration that Isabel did um, with another journalist about deportations from um, uh, the United States to Latin America and the Caribbean. And uh, basically it details the ways that uh, the U.S. through its deportation mechanisms um, is enforcing uh, a spread of the pandemic. Um, you have a lot of people facing danger of the pandemic within immigration jails um, of the federal government in the United States. Um, a lot of people who are getting COVID-19 within immigration jails and being transferred between immigration jails, even across state lines in some cases, and then eventually being deported and carrying COVID-19 that um, migrants and asylum seekers actually got due to being detained, due to being in unsafe conditions as a result of federal government policy in the United States. Um, so I thought this was an important piece to look at. Uh, it's on The Intercept. It's called Exporting the Virus, How Trump's Deportation Flights Are Putting Latin America and the Caribbean at Risk. So I spoke to Isabel um, McDonald uh, about this piece, um, and here's our discussion. I'm with Isabel McDonald, um, who has been reporting on uh, deportations in the context of the pandemic uh, from the United States, uh, particularly to Haiti and also to Guatemala. There's a lot of details um, to go over, but um, in our uh, discussion just before we started recording, uh, Isabel had mentioned that um, there's a very high risk that migrants and asylum seekers that have have faced in the United States in regards to um, the pandemic within detention. So could we maybe start there? And uh, thank you again for, for speaking with me. Thank you for the opportunity to um, speak to your listeners, Stefan. So, yeah, I mean, we know that the U.S. Um, has been a an epicenter of this pandemic. Um, there are, according to the latest data from John Hopkins University, there are more than 2.85 million people who've been infected by COVID-19 in the U.S. And there have been over 129,000 deaths. So the U.S. is a site where COVID-19 infection rates are very high. We know that. Um, and then on top of that, we have a particular set of high-risk environments, which are detention centers, um, prisons, jails, 
and immigrant detention centers. And because there has not been systematic testing of everybody in detention, we actually don't know how many people in detention are infected. Um, but according to the statistics that have been released by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, which is the U.S. government body that is responsible for detaining, um, for detaining immigrants, there are, there were, as of June 25th, more than 2,500 detainees who had tested positive on ISIS own tests. Wow. Um, and the, detained by the U.S. government, obviously. Exactly. More than that yeah. have been tested. Um, more than that have tested positive in the past, but those are the active cases. There are active over, cases. yeah, wow. there, there are thousands more who have, who have tested mm -hmm. positive, but these are the ones that are considered to be active cases. They were as of June 25th. And the, um, yeah, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences has estimated that at least 72% of the population in detention could potentially become infected. Um, but without systematic testing, we're not going to know what the true, what the true sure. rate of infection is. Sure. So we have within, it, the U.S. itself is a hotbed of COVID-19, and then we have these detention centers, which because of poor circulation of air, because, of, mm -hmm. because there is, it, it, is, it is almost impossible to implement social distancing measures sure, sure. recommended by public health authorities within detention centers, there are particularly high risks in detention centers mm -hmm. of um, exposure to COVID-19. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have the problem of the way in which mm -hmm. the U.S., proceeds with deporting people, they do not, they have admitted that they do not test everybody they deport. So in countries like Haiti and Guatemala, which is the country that has received the most deportation flights from the U.S., according to data from um, the Center for Economic and Policy Research. It's received more than 90 deportation flights um, wow. since February. There are many people who have, after coming off of these flights, after landing in places like Guatemala City, um, in the Haitian context in Port-au-Prince, mm -hmm. who then tested positive on tests administered by local public health authorities and um, so instead of restricting travel to contain the spread of COVID-19 sure. which is what public health guidance around the world has urged yeah the World the, Health Organization have, has said that very clearly the United States yeah. has instead been exporting COVID-19 um, and according to an analysis by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, since February, there have actually been more than 372 deportation flights wow. chartered by the United States to at least 15 countries wow. in Latin America and the Caribbean. Wow. Um, and it's likely much higher than that, but they are, they are, this research center has, has analyzed these as likely deportation flights on the basis that, these are, that, the, that they know that these flights are operated 
by companies that charter for Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, the U.S. Um, the U.S. agency that carries out deportations, and they follow known deportation routes. Mm-hmm. However, there could be companies that this group is not aware of who are carrying out deportation flights. I so the, yeah. the rate actually could be much higher. But of those that are that are that are known as of today, which is yeah, they sort of were in the end of the first week of July, um, it is 372 wow. flights that they have been able to identify. Yeah, there have been there have been seven plane loads of immigrants sent to Haiti since March 13th, which was when President Donald Trump declared a pan- the pandemic to be a national emergency in the United States. Um, Haiti is a country with just 120 intensive care unit beds and even fewer ventilators for a population of 11 million. So we're talking about the United States deporting immigrants who have likely been exposed or are at, face, are at high risk of having been exposed yeah. to COVID-19 in U.S. custody mm-hmm. to countries that have very, very limited capacity mm-hmm. with which to respond to this crisis. So there are a whole series of risks that, yeah. that, that are involved in this. Um, first of all, um, because countries like Haiti and Guatemala have far fewer hospital resources mm-hmm. than the U.S., mm-hmm. With, that they can mobilize in order to treat people who are sick, there is a risk to the lives of these immigrants who mm-hmm. are being who are being sent to these countries where they may well not be able to get treatment if sure. they have they have been sick as a as a result of the negle- negligence by U.S. immigration authorities who are now being sued in a number of lawsuits over over their practices and their failures to protect properly protect those in their custody mm-hmm. from this virus. Um, there's also the risk to the rest of the population in countries like Haiti and Guatemala and um, these other many countries, as I mentioned, um, there are at least 15 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean where these deportation flights have been have been sent according to um, the Center for Economic and Policy Research's analysis. Um, there are also other countries outside of Latin America and the Caribbean. They just focused on Latin America and the Caribbean, but sure. there's also India where, um, where deportees um, from the U.S. recently tested positive. Um, Romania, um, there are, there are, there are, so there's an ever-expanding list of, of, of countries where the U.S. has been deporting people since the COVID um, pandemic began. And people, people, people would remember um, images of, um, well, that, that many different community organizations and campaigners shared of um, the response and the reality that came out of Trump's immigration, well, the Trump administration's immigration policy in terms of kids being detained uh, seeing images of families, uh, I mean, uh, in detention centers, in caged areas. Um, also, there's the situation of the um, basically how the U.S. government um, won't allow people to remain in the United States once they've, even if they want to make an, a refugee application, um, sending people back. And then there's border encampments, just 
outside of the border of Texas. Um, so people would remember sort of the crowded conditions, especially in the border encampments and also within immigration detention centers. So that hasn't changed since the pandemic. So I'm just wondering if you could draw a bit of a link between sort of like all these conditions that existed before and and why it's important to recall and remember that those conditions that persist but in this current context yeah so i think definitely the conditions conditions in immigrant detention centers are are a major public health hazard in the context of this pandemic these conditions had already been called out for violating human rights um for violating um detainees rights to health care um, and now on top of that you have this global pandemic that we've seen from the soaring rates of infection in the US since the since 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 February that even a country like the US which does have very sophisticated hospital capacity and uh, health ha- does have a healthcare infrastructure. People's the question of access to that infrastructure is 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 a major is a major issue that has sure. been that has really been exposed. But the U.S. People does in have can't access it. People yeah. people in det- it has the the problem of access to healthcare for people in detention has long been a big issue. Yeah. But now, because the conditions in detention centers are crowded, yeah. because access to health care already, is already a problem for people in detention, um, the pandemic is, is, yeah, puts them that much more at risk. And so there are a lot of groups who have been calling for the release of detainees, yeah. and there are several federal, um, there, have, there's, there, there have been federal lawsuits mm-hmm. in which the U.S. has been ordered to release to release detainees. Um, what they have been what they have been doing in response is moving detainees from detention center to detention center. So some of the people that I talked to, who were deported at the end of May, to Haiti, they had been transferred um, since the pandemic began. They had been transferred to multiple detention centers put on crowded buses with other immigrants from Haiti, as well as Guatemala, Mexico, many different countries, um, never tested for COVID-19, even though they were moved, they were moved from one detention center to another detention center where there were, um, where there were in some cases there, they, one person that I, that I interviewed had, Said, he said that there were people were already having trouble breathing, coming down with fevers, wow. um, mysteriously getting sick before he left. Wow. He was not tested. Um, he was sent from that detention center to another detention center. He was then sent to an airport in Louisiana, um, where he was he was he was told he was going to be deported, but then he wasn't de- deported. He was sent back to he was sent to another detention center. Um, and this was the case with a number of the people that I interviewed. Um, one, yeah, one, one of these, what, many of them had been to the airport on at least three occasions before they were actually, before they were actually deported. Wow. 
and they had all been transferred to multiple detention centers of yeah. six people who were deported at the end of May to Haiti. Um, they had all been transferred to multiple detention centers. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, one of them, one of these individuals who in an article that I um, published with another journalist, who, um, Melissa Del Bosque, who's based in Mexico, who's been focusing more on the situation in Guatemala. Um, in that article, I spoke one of the one of the these individuals who who was who was deported at the end of May to Haiti told me that um, he still he had tested positive for COVID nineteen wow. at a, an ICE detention center in Louisiana. This was wow. the yeah he had been he had been he was the individual who had been transferred by bus. Um, from he first started out at deten three detention centers in D Georgia, shuffled around between three wow. detention centers in Georgia. He was then put on a crowded bus um, that brought hundreds of miles um, from Georgia to Louisiana, brought to the airport, not deported, sent yeah. to another detention center. There he tested positive for COVID-19. He fell sick um, within 24 hours of arriving at this, um, what was essentially the fifth detention center, if you count the airport where ICE has a holding pen for immigrants as a detention center. So he was at his fifth detention center since the COVID pandemic began. And there he tested positive for COVID-19. Um, the flight that he was initially supposed to be on, he was told, which left the Louisiana internet, this, the Alexandria International Airport in Louisiana on April 7th. Um, landed after it landed in Haiti, three people who were on that flight tested positive as well. Um, 13 staff people at the ice holding facility at the airport in Louisiana also tested positive just a week after the flight. Um, and he wasn't the only one who was transferred to the airport and then to this sure. detention center who I spoke to who had tested positive wow. just around that time. Wow. There were in fact six of them who all were transferred to the airport and then sent to this other detention center where they tested positive. After they tested positive, I still nonetheless tried to deport them um, this particular individual who, who, who still had symptoms at the time he was deported, he told me, he, who I, I call him in the article Jude, because I'm not, I'm wanting to protect sure, his, sure. his, um, his identity because he could be at risk as could his family. But Jude told me that, um, he, Shortly after, so shortly after arriving at um, an ICE detention center called Pine Prairie in Louisiana, so this is after he spent hundreds of he's 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 traveled hundreds of miles by bus. He's already been to the airport and not deported once. He um, came down with a very high fever, um, had great difficulty breathing. Um, and because his symptoms were so extreme, he was tested, he was tested for COVID-19 and he tested positive. He was then put in quarantine with, um, with a number of other Haitians who had been with him at the airport and who had also been sent to this 
ICE detention center, this other ICE detention center, um, where they'd all te tested, at, all of them after testing positive had been put, um, had been put together. Um, and about, yeah, so that was in the first week of April that he tested positive. He told me he tested positive six times during the period, during over the next like, over the next like month, month. and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and after he received his sixth, the results of his sixth positive test, right? So confirming that he was still COVID positive, um, he was told, pack your bags, you're being deported tomorrow. Um, he was sent again on a bus with other immigrants back to the airport and he um, he then perhaps due to pressure from activist groups who um, staged a campaign alerted many journalists to this situation he was pulled off the flight for a second time at the last minute um, but he was he was shackled, he was put on a bus, he was sent to the airport, he was, he was told that he was going to be on that flight. Um, and so due to, due to pressure, um, after it came to light um, that some individuals who were supposed to be deported on this, on this flight that was a couple of weeks before the flight he ended up being deported on, um, he and a number of other individuals were pulled off the flight. Um, but when he was finally deported two weeks later, I spoke to him from the airport and he told me, I can't breathe. I have, feel feverish. He had reported these symptoms at the ICE detention center just before he, just sure. a day before he'd been shackled and put on a bus to go to the airport. And he'd been told, take, what he told me was he was just told to take some Tylenol. He told me that he had again reported these symptoms at the Alexandria Inter International Airport, where we, he was held again by ICE in, a, in this holding pen before being, de before being deported the next day. And he was again, he told me he was told to take some Tylenol. And... Even though he was still reporting symptoms, he was deported. Got it, got it. Wow. Well, we're recording this in Montreal, and we're outside to keep a distance, and there's kids around. But um, thank you for going over all these details, uh, Isabel. These articles are... Yeah, where can people find them to learn more about everything that you've just described? All right, so the article that is really looking at this issue of the U.S., exporting the coronavirus yeah, to countries like Haiti is at The Intercept, so yeah. theintercept.com. Yeah. And um, there is also, I would, if people are interested in following this issue, um, the Center for Economic and Policy yeah. Research has also been doing really great work to track deportation yeah. flights, especially to Latin America and the Caribbean. Okay. So I would encourage people to to look at look at their site as well thank you so much thank you thank you 
That was a discussion with investigative journalist Isabel McDonald, um, who uh, published uh, the piece we were talking about called Exporting the Virus, How Trump's Deportation Flights Are Putting Latin America and the Caribbean at Risk. You can find that through The Intercept. Um, It was a co-authored piece that Isabel worked on. Um, So uh, an important text. I'd really encourage people to check it out. Thank you for tuning in to Free City Radio. Um, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. I'm trying to do this podcast more regularly. Uh, this is the 11th edition. I'm recording here at home, just off of Jean Talon Street uh, here in Montreal. The uh, dog who lives upstairs is barking a little bit right now. But um, that's uh, a podcast uh, uh, from a community activists' sounds um, doing this at home. I'm happy to share it with you. And... Um, I'd really encourage people to keep keep following the issues that were brought up uh, in the podcast. Um, you can um, message me if you uh, have any ideas or feedback. Uh, my email is stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm on uh, Twitter at spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And uh, please do subscribe to Free City Radio Podcast. Uh, You can find us on iTunes. Give us a a positive review if you like the show. That'd be super cool. Tell some friends. Thanks again for being with us. I'm going to go out uh, with a piece of music that my brother uh, Jordan Christoph worked on. He's part of a duo with another artist called PJs. Uh, It's a beautiful track. um, And uh, that's... um, what we're going to do to end this podcast. Thanks for tuning in.